Welcome to the class called Navigating Faith's Tensions, or if you prefer, Drinking from a Fire Hydrant. Um, here you go. <laughs> I, I will sometimes, uh, when I speak here, look back over the past year and think about what sermon series has been a particular benefit to our congregation, uh, or one that, has, that I felt has you know struck a nerve, something like that. And so what you are getting this morning is is three messages into one. They are all of one piece. They develop one from the other to the other. And I will, I will let you know when I'm moving from one to the next to the next. But it is, that is the flow, and you will get it in, in, in one session. Just a word of, of introduction, I suppose. Uh, a year ago, we were wrapping up what I would consider a fairly contentious elder selection process in our congregation. And I was seeking to function as a pastor, as a minister, as a shepherd, inviting our congregation to say, yes, we have some differences of thought here, but yes, we can also stay together. And so this was, if you will, my, my attempt at inviting us to continue to come to the table together, to continue to become, a, to, to continue to be, try to be a faithful congregation in the midst of uh, diverse opinions and diverse visions about how we should proceed, uh, and so this this is what you this is what I'm uh, attempting to present this morning. And so, if you're ready, let's go. Uh, you may not remember the name of Aaron Ralston, but I bet you remember his story. In April of 2003, he was canyoneering alone through the Blue John Canyon, uh, just south of Canyonlands National Park in Utah. And while he was descending a slot canyon, an 800-pound boulder dislodged. And the boulder pinned his right hand uh, against the canyon wall, and he was unable to free himself. Ralston had not told anyone his hiking plans, his cell phone reception did not work that deep in a canyon. And so, after five days of rationing his water and his food, he had an agonizing choice to make. I won't go into the gory details, but Ralston ended up amputating his arm. He descended the slot canyon. He repelled 65 feet. He walked 65 miles, or six miles, excuse me, until he ran into a vacationing family who got him some help. Uh, Ralston told his story in the 2004 book, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. It was made into the 2010 film, 127 Hours, starring James Franco. And though I am fascinated by this story, I did not see the movie. I could not yeah. see the movie. So I want to begin with the observation that some choices that we face in life are like Aaron Ralston's choice in Blue John Canyon, a clear-cut choice between life and death. But I also want to observe that many choices that we come up against in life are not nearly that stark. In February of 2022, just over a year ago, David Leonhart of the New York Times uh, wrote an article in which he reflected on the rising frustration of Americans over inflation and higher prices. It's, it's, it's nothing new. It was pretty standard fare. Basically, it went something like this. Something is wrong, and people are mad about it. Okay, have you read that article before? I, I've read it 100,000 times. Okay. But he got toward the end of it. And he concluded like this. 
and he was, so the article wasn't about COVID, but he was using COVID as an example of the differences. He wrote on the one hand, pretending that COVID has disappeared has costs to people's livelihoods, happiness, and physical well-being. And allowing COVID to continue dominating everyday life has costs to people's livelihoods, happiness, and physical well-being. The only realistic option is to balance the two and look for a path that minimizes the human damage. Yes. So I'm beginning with this observation. Some choices are clear-cut day and night, and others require navigation and wisdom. So this is what Leonard uh, illustrates is this other kind of choice we come up against in life. Um, choices with options. Uh, each which has something to commend it and something to critique it. Uh, in other words, it's a choice with trade-offs, with pros and cons. And we find ourselves having to make these kinds of choices all the time, whether, we, whether we're creating budgets or making career choices or, or making parental decisions. Now, I think I would also observe, I think you would agree, that we, we reach such choices in our faith when we find ourselves navigating faith's tensions. Now, let me say what this is not, okay? Uh, this is not about straightforward choices such as, should I honor Jesus as Lord? The answer is yes, period, unequivocally. Um, should I hate or harm others? Uh, the answer is no, clearly, unequivocally. Should I be faithful to my vows? Yes, until death do us part. Okay, so I'm not entertaining those kinds of questions here this morning. Uh, rather, I want us to entertain uh, the, how we work through or think through the process of working through the tensions that we feel perennially as people of faith in every generation, things like this. Pursuing justice versus practicing forgiveness. Okay, you ever feel the burn on that one? Or caring for personal needs versus caring for communal needs. Or how about engaging in difficult relationships and with difficult people versus maintaining healthy boundaries. Prophetically challenging people's shortcomings versus pastorally engaging with people's hurts and needs. Enjoying God-given freedoms versus curtailing freedoms and preferences for the greater good of the community. Pursuing time-honored traditions versus embracing healthy innovations. I would suggest that for these kinds of decisions, there may not be one right answer for all time, but what is most appropriate for this time, this place, this season, this congregation. So Ecclesiastes 3 is a familiar poem, I believe. It's a poem about time and life's constant changes. And the poet describes a spectrum of human activity, 14 pairs of opposites, starting with birth and death, with planting and harvesting, the whole cycle of life for humans and plants. And we won't read through all of this, but, but I just want this to be in your mind, okay? There is a, there, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to heal up, a time to throw away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to tear, a time to sow, to keep silence, to speak, to love, to hate, a time for war a time for peace. Okay, here's this 
this poem that makes all of these observations. And I think our poet is describing the, thing, the gamut of things that happen in life. And like a grandfather clock, there is a tick-tock, tick-tock kind of rhythm. So think about the peace-loving nation finds itself having to prepare for war. The shepherd takes the knife to the sheep that he nurtured uh, from, its, fr from, its, you know, from its infancy, if you will. Um, the holes that we once dug are now refilled with dirt. What we once eagerly paid full retail price for, we now sell for a quarter at a garage sale. Um, buildings that were carefully engineered and built are demolished and turned, torn down to make room for others. The policies of one president are repealed by the next. Tick, tock, tick, tock. And, and so a wise behavior during one season can be totally inappropriate during another season. And there are people who, who study such tensions in churches and organizations. Uh, Roy Oswald and Barry Johnson wrote a book called Managing Polarities in Congregations, and I'm drawing from it in this section. And they use the analogy of breathing as, I think, a really helpful one. So, so think about this. Uh, you, you inhale and you take in oxygen, which is a really good thing. However, if you refuse to exhale, uh, then carbon dioxide begins to build up in your lungs. Not a good thing. So you exhale. Out goes the carbon dioxide, which is a good thing. But if you only exhale, uh, then you don't get the oxygen that you need, which is a bad thing. So what do you do? Well, you alternate between breathing and exhaling. Uh, and should you, should you decide that you're only going to inhale, or you're only going to exhale, good luck, because you're not going to survive for long. But if you embrace that rhythm of breathing in and of breathing out, you will enjoy the benefits of respiration, of circulation, and oh, by the way, lasting life. So breathing is an example of a polarity, okay, which can't be reconciled by collapsing it to one side or the other, but must be constantly negotiated. It has two opposite halves that equally help sustain life and health. And you remove either in the system or the human cannot survive. All right, so let's take an example of a polarity in the church. What about tradition and stability versus innovation uh, and, and change? Um, all right. I, I think you would agree, I hope you would agree, this is not a, an either or, but that this is a both and. Okay, so what's healthy about tradition on the plus side? Well, let's see. Uh, uh, tradition is familiar, it's comfortable, it's what is known. Uh, it typically honors the godly wisdom of the past, what we've learned in previous generations that worked and was beneficial. Uh, it's rooted often in past successes. It's time-tested, it's known, it's predictable, okay? And those things are comforting to us. So that's, that's a plus of, of tradition. What about on the innovation side? Well, oftentimes innovation brings new energy. It brings in new perspective. It, it often responds to new realities. I don't know if you've noticed, but things don't stay the same over time. And so uh, innovation allows you to address new concerns that weren't there a generation uh, er earlier. And change can be a very healthy thing for us. Okay, what about on the other side? What about the unhealthy side of tradition if you're just stuck there? Well, it can lead to stagnation and restlessness. It, it can create less relevance um, to the present, which will translate into missed opportunities. 
Um, okay, what about on the other side about, what about the unhealthy side of innovation? Well, can create conflict and chaos. Have you noticed that, perhaps? Uh, chasing relevance can be fickle, right? If you're just chasing the latest headline, the latest, greatest thing, uh, that can be a hamster wheel. Um, and also, innovation can feel untested, unsafe, unpredictable. So even though what we're doing isn't working, well, we just don't know about innovation. All right. So some things to think about in terms of the laws of polarities. Um, again, we're just kind of getting this big picture in view about how do we live in the tick and the talk uh, of, of, of life with wisdom. So a couple of things about the laws of polarity. The longer you stay on one side of a polarity, whether it's tradition or innovation, the more likely you are to sink to the negative aspect of it. Okay, so you stay there for a long time, you, you, you begin to miss the benefits that it first brought you. Uh, number two, focus on completely on one pole, either tradition or innovation, innovation uh, is never the answer. There's going to be some kind of healthy tension uh, that is going to be necessary to live in for a healthy organized. And so th this brings us to number three, a polarity is not a problem to solve, it's a tension to manage. Okay, so think about when we're in congregational seasons. Uh, which we're sorting out how best to proceed. Ecclesiastes 3, this poem about there's a time for this and a time for that, reminds us um, that what is needed is wisdom to discern what season this is. And if you think about this in Scripture, uh, you will find that there are times when, uh, on the one hand, God's people are reprimanded for, for leaving the tried and true ways. So you remember Jeremiah 6.16? Um, this invitation, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths and seek that way and walk in it. Okay, so there are times. So this is, um, this is a little just before the exile when Jerusalem is coming under the judgment of God and the prophet is calling them back to ways of justice and faithfulness to God instead of idolatry. Okay, but it is also possible. So take a look here. Um, what's happening? There, where's my Isaiah slide? There it is. In Isaiah 43, this is, this is during the exile, when the exiles are in Babylon, they're far from home, and God says this, don't remember the former things or consider the things of old, because I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, talking about the way uh, when Cyrus comes in and sets, allows the Jews to go back to their homeland. God is doing this new thing. So this is not a time to seek the old ways. This is a time to, to be open to what God is doing in your midst in, in a new time. Well, that's interesting. Both of these have scriptural warmth. Both of these are in, in our story, in our, in our foundational text. And so what is required? Wisdom. Wisdom to discern what time is it in our congreg congregational lives. Okay, so we see in these two texts both continuity with heritage, living by the wisdom of your past, and also the reality of a God who does new and surprising things. All right, so Jesus once told a kingdom parable. Do you remember this one? Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I would simply observe that in every generation, the church wrestles 
with what is new and what is old. And I think Jesus was getting at our need to relate the old and the new in creative ways, to see the new and the old, and to see the old in the new. And we are to bring out both the rich and varied wealth of biblical tradition and Jesus' bold and distinctive kingdom vision. So, my invitation is we have to remember that there are seasons in our life can we seek to discern what moment we are now in with God? Do we know what time it is? And so, there's a time to study and earn that degree. And there's a time to get a job. <laughs> there's a time to try hard and to give it your best shot. And there's a time to move on. There's a time to save and skimp. There's a time to celebrate and spend. Uh, there's a time to push and there's a time to rest. There's a time to hold tightly and a time to let go. There's a time to attentively raise children and there's a time to release them to the Lord. There's a time to labor diligently. There's a time to retire gracefully. There's a time to do research and there's a time to write the book. <laughs> there's a time to circle the wagons and there's a time to stick your neck out. All right, all well and good, preacher. All well and good. Um, but what if we don't agree what season we're in as a congregation? What if we have divergent ideas about what is most wise and most needed in the present moment? Well, what I would say is in such moments, we go back to the greatest commandments, the teachings of first importance, and the weightier matters of Scripture. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And this is what we talk about in number two here, in the second part. Having a firm center and soft edges. All right, so here is part two. Firm center and soft edges is the idea that we hold our deepest convictions strongly, like the pit that provides a solid core for the peach. And, at the same time, that we move through the world with kindness and graciousness, like the fleshy outer layers of a peach, thus firm center, soft edges. Now, I read about this idea in Barry Corey's wonderful book, Love Kindness, Discover the Power of a Forgotten Christian Virtue. But I've seen it embodied for many years before I read the book in Christians that I know, including my own, my own parents. Uh, so let's talk a bit about what a firm center and soft edges uh, look like. And I will say, as we begin, that I'm grateful that the New Testament highlights from time to time what is the greatest commandment, what is the teaching of most importance, what is the weightier matter uh, of faith. Because those things, I call them the yellow highlighter passages, um, those are where we camp, right? That's what we really focus on. That's what gives us the firm center for our faith. So let's, let's look at just a couple of these. These are familiar to you, so I know I'm not teaching you, but I just, I'm just bringing us back to the firm center. Okay, you know the story. The scribe comes to Jesus. You know, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus quotes the Shema. Here is well, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus throws in a freebie. Uh, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right. Familiar terrain, right? Jesus is not saying anything new here. 
Okay? He is well within the Jewish uh, tradition, quoting two verses from the Old Testament. The first verse he quotes is so famous, it's known by a one-name moniker, like Shaq or Kobe. You don't even have to have a last name. It's just, you know, it's Steph. You know, it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's just known. Okay? And, and this verse is known as Shema. And all the faithful children of Israel knew, and that morning and evening they would recite the Shema, going back as a touchstone. You go back to it. So Jesus is well within the tradition here. Uh, and, it, and it's the teaching that you love God with, with everything that you have, right? But then Jesus does something. He, he's got a chutzpah here because Jesus amends the Shema. He alters it. He, he tweaks it. Okay, because he says, he, ad he adds Leviticus 19, verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not new for Hebrew faith either, but Jesus clarifies that loving God is connected to loving neighbor. Instead of it just being a love God Shema, it's a love God, love neighbor Shema. That's the thing. Of, of first importance. And Jesus is kind of creating, if you will, a, Rus, a Russian nesting doll. Okay, the, the outside biggest one is love God. The next one is love neighbor. Whatever else you want to put into faith has to fit inside of love God, love neighbor. If it doesn't fit in there, it doesn't fit. Put it to the side. I mean, that's, I think that's what he says, what he means when he said, this is the most important, this is the second most important. Okay, so that's a pretty, pretty important kind of idea. Let, let me give you another one. Again, familiar, familiar, familiar. Okay? John 13. I give you a new command that you love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is interesting. Love one another isn't exactly new. I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. So, so what's, what's the new uh, uh, about it here? Well, it's new in the sense that love will be the hallmark of Jesus' followers. It will be, love will be the calling card. We have that song, don't we? And they'll know we are Christians by our love. I mean, that's, I think that's what this verse uh, is, is getting at. Well, other New Testament writers pick up on this. Paul, Romans 13, uh, verses uh, 8 and following. Oh, no one, anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, not covet. Any of the, these commandments are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. All right, so I, I'm saying if you're going to have a firm center, this ought to be it. Now, you might have some other verses that you would put in there, but I'm, I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground because Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, and, and you find it being picked up and echoed by other New Testament writers. Now, is there anything else in that, in that neighborhood? Well, I would, I would suggest yes. Because <laughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is something else to our faith that is really central. Uh, he identifies it as a thing of first importance. And again, you know, you know this verse. I hand it on to you like a relay race receiving a baton, and I pass it on to you uh, as a first importance what I to receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared. Okay, death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus, right? Right at the highlight. And then, in 1 John, uh, John, I, I think in 1 John, he brings together the love God, love neighbor, 
and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he kind of weaves them together. So see if, see if this makes sense to you. I think this is, okay, so you know this verse. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Okay, so you see how John weaves these two core teachings together. Uh, we are to love one another, an echo of Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18, to love neighbor as self. Uh, what Jesus called the second uh, commandment and what Paul called the fulfillment of the law. But the foundation of loving one another isn't found in ourselves. It's not just humanism. Oh, it's good for the human race, therefore we just, we, we love one another. I mean, and that's, you know, that, that could be a pragmatic argument you could make. But the reason we do this is because the basis is found in God, who so loved the world that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right, so why are Jesus' death and resurrection of first importance? Because in them, God displays his love for a broken world. Why are we taught that loving neighbor and loving God is the first and second commandment? Because when we love, we echo the heart of the one who is our creator and Lord and redeemer. To put it into a nutshell, we love because he first loved us. And friends, this is what I'm arguing is the firm center of our faith. Rooted in Christ and his teaching, rooted in the death and resurrection. I mean, that's as far as I read it, that's, that's the heart. That, that's the core. This is the criterion by which we measure everything else by the test of love, rooted in God's self-giving love as seen in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. This is the acid test for our faith. Okay, so now let's come back to our congregational time of discernment and tension and, and, and potential conflict. Whenever we go through these seasons of con congregational discernment, we may find ourselves feeling anxious, dysregulated, um, maybe even feeling a little sad or irritable or frustrated or angry. And so how are we to maintain our footing during these kinds of times where we, you know, it's upsetting. Why can't everyone see it like I see it? You know, God's way. Um, <laughs> well, so here's where we go back to the heart of our faith. We give our full attention to the central, weighty things of first importance and we hold to a firm center. And we combine it with soft edges. So what does that look like? In a word, I think soft edges looks like kindness. Whenever we engage with others who are different, a different mind from us, whether inside or outside of the church, we ought to engage in a spirit of Christ-like graciousness. We seek to operate out of firm faith convictions, yes, but in a way that is gracious and kind. Uh, do you remember 1 Corinthians 13? Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, if I, if I give my body to be sacrificed on the fire, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Paul wasn't writing to a couple getting married there. You can use it in a wedding. I, I have used it in my daughter's wedding. But he's writing to a congregation in conflict about spiritual gifts and which gifts are the most important. And Paul is trying to speak to that. So, a firm center and a soft edges allow us to pursue meaning without meanness. 
We don't have to wrap ourselves in barbed wire or dip our tongues in acid to be faithful Christians. And it feels like to me the last few years, kindness has become an endangered species, even or perhaps even especially in the church. People are exploding with anger on planes, in grocery stores, on Twitter feeds and Facebook posts, on ball fields and freeways, hospitals. And maybe that's why that show Ted Lasso, maybe you've seen it, I think became so popular during the pandemic lockdown. Because in a cynical and backstabbing world, a coach who practices kindness uh, inspires some shared humanity and reminds us that we can do better in how we treat one another. Do you know the name Makoto Fujimura? He's a, a world-class artist and a faithful Christian who speaks about culture care instead of culture war. And he writes, culture care is an act of generosity to our neighbors and our culture. Culture care is to see our world not as a battle zone in which we're all vying for limited resources, but as a world of abundant possibilities and promise. And Fujimura is talking about a set of dispositions characterized by a commitment to grace and beauty and creativity instead of antipathy and disdain and pulsing anger. It is the difference between an open hand and a clenched fist. And so I believe we're called to engage the culture with deep conviction, but in a way that is loving and full of grace and winsome not full of fish-shaking and shouting and scorn. We need to engage in temperate tones, not in throwing stones from pedestals. You remember 1 Peter 3.15? Always be ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is within you. But, but what? What does he say? But do it with gentleness and reverence. Firm center, soft edges. And by the way, don't confuse kindness with niceness. Niceness is defined as pleasing or agreeable or likable, but, but kindness has more rebar in it. It's defined as having or showing or proceeding from benevolence. Niceness may be pleasant, but it lacks conviction. Niceness kind of wanders about aimlessly and stands for little. Kindness is not mean, but it cares enough to lovingly challenge. If you have an intervention with someone, that's because of kindness, because you care deeply about them. Kindness is not timid or frail. And Paul lists it among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, as you well know. So kindness is the way of a firm center and soft edges. Uh, my friend Jen was in the, the grocery store a couple of years ago, and one of her kids was having a rough time, and I'm sure that's never happened to you. Um, and a lady, just went off on her. That kid is bad. And you're bad. It's your fault. If you look at that child under control, I'm going to call Child Protective Services. And she was just horrified. She's a good mom whose kid is having a tough day, right? Uh, how different is that from what my own wife experienced when our youngest was, I don't know, three and just having a rough day in church? And unfortunately, my wife sits with me on the second row. <laughs> and so that meant she had to do the walk of shame with a screaming toddler on her shoulder. All the way out. She felt humiliated, horrified. And after church, 
Saint Sandy, one of the servant leaders in our church, came up, put her arm on Carrie, and just looked her in the eyes and said, Carrie, we've all been there. I mean, what a difference. What a difference. So firm center, yes, absolutely. Soft edges, we work that. That's part two. All right. So, moving into part three. A few years ago, I was visiting a church one, one town over. I was at a Sunday off. Uh, and, and I happened to, to arrive at this church when their leaders were having a conversation about their new congregational vision and, and direction. And they had been working apparently for months preparing for this day. And, and they had been doing what, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you call it, but sometimes organizations, they think about their vision and they're going to put one word in the box. And there's only room for one word. So what's the word going to be that's going to define our organization that's going to, we're going to test everything by this one word. And so I was like, ooh, I, I, you know, I'm always you know, listening and what, what's, what can I learn here? And so the word, I was like, is it Christ-likeness? Is it faithfulness? Is it you know, love? Is it? And the word that they had landed on was accuracy. <laughs> accuracy. And I just cringed uh, that this church's number one purpose for being was going to be about being right, about biblical interpretation. And I thought, I know how this church is going to spend its next 50 years arguing about who's right and who's wrong and who's partially right and who's mostly wrong and by how much. And it's going to spend an enormous amount of time and energy defending minor doctrinal points because if you put accuracy in the box, every detail matters. If you put accuracy in the box, you better make sure you're right and that you're showing others how they are wrong all the time. It's not that I don't care about accuracy or, or, or about truth or, or about faithfulness, right? I've spent a ton of educational energy over the years learning scripture, biblical language, church history, theology, okay? So I, I care about these things. But I've seen what happens when, even with good intentions, a church puts accuracy as their reason for being. It leads to pride, a certain chippiness, Constant hair-splitting, uh, unnecessary fights on secondary matters, the straining of gnats and the swallowing of camels, and a lot of collateral damage. No thank you. Okay. So in every generation, God's people have to navigate a variety of faith tensions, right? That's what we're talking about today. And we're thinking about how to operate out of a firm center, a firm commitments, in our core convictions while showing kindness toward those we don't see eye to eye with. So what happens when we're living within our convictions and we're showing kindness, but we can't reach an agreement on a question of substance? What do we do then? Okay, so we're, we're, we're trying to be kind, and we're trying to be principled, and we still can't agree. All right. Well, I would like to coin a theological term today that we'll call muddling through. <laughs> now hear me. Hear me. What do I mean by muddling through? To manage, to survive, to cope, to get by, to make do, to get along, to get her done, to make the best of it. Unless you think I'm talking about wallowing in, in mediocrity, 
in mediocrity, I would direct your attention to this image, okay? What, what, go back to January of 2020. What were your plans for the year? And what did you end up doing that year? I'm guessing you did a lot of muddling through. Now, that doesn't mean you just waddled in nothingness. <laughs> but it sure didn't go how you drew it up on the, you know, in the architectural drawings. It, it, it didn't go like that, okay? And often, that's how life goes for us, okay? We have our plans, and life happens. Everything goes sideways. The unexpected derails our neat and planned little uh, world. Uh, and, I mean, de disease and, dis and death and dysfunction happen, and involuntary termination happens, and separation and divorce happen, and addictions happen. And what do we do then? Well, we make the best of a tough situation. We keep going. We muddle through. But this is surely not what we drew up, you know, when we were making our plans. And so I'd like for us to reflect a little bit in this segment on um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to a church that was experiencing a lot of quarreling uh, with one another. And, and, and you remember, right, in chapter 1, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Well, I am of Christ, you know. Okay, they're going back and forth. Um, and, and part of the problem in Corinth is that there are certain Christians who have put a premium on certain spiritual gifts and are prizing them above all the others and disdaining or looking down at those who don't have that same manifestation of the Spirit coming out of their lives. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with the gift that they have, but it's, it's how they're holding the gift and how they're looking uh, at others who don't share that gift. And so in the middle or toward the end of the book, Paul spends three chapters discussing spiritual gifts in the church emphasizing the communal benefit of all the gifts over against the elevation of any single gift. Okay, so let's, let, let's, let's look at this. Uh, just as one body, it, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of one body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into the one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Beautiful. Beautiful passage here. Uh, and, and I want you to think about, okay, um, many members, one body. Okay, so uh, every spring in my backyard, or uh, beyond my backyard, there's a creek that flows through. And there are frogs like you wouldn't believe. And there is a wall of sound emanating. We once, when my girls were little, we took a bucket and flashlights. We went looking for them. We couldn't find a single one. Turns out they're no bigger than your thumb. Like, like even half your thumb. But together, those frogs make a wall of sound that would maybe be intimidating to a nighttime predator. It's like, I don't know what's over there, but it's, it, sounds, it sounds awfully big. Um, and so that's one way to think about, you know, many members, one body. Here's another way to, to, to think about it. Think about mosaics. So a mosaic is a work of art composed of thousands of fragments of rock or glass. And an artist or an artisan carefully arranges these colors into patterns. And if you look at a, a mosaic up close, you might say, it's just a bunch of broken glass. But when you back up and you take it in as the whole, you see beauty and, and meaning. Paul is arguing here that the church and all of its fragmentary individuality is shaped by God's spirit to create this beautiful, unified whole. Yes, each of us is a jagged rock or a broken piece of glass, but if we allow God 
God takes each of us, shapes us, arranges us into something beautiful. Okay, and, and then Paul lists this group of different, th these groups of different people, Jews or Greeks, slave or, or free, who are all baptized through the Spirit. Uh, notice that these groups are not natural friends. Okay, I think that's worth noting. Earl, Earl Palmer makes the comment, uh, we are brought together as Christians because of Christ's invitation and the people who look, he puts us alongside may be the very selection of neighbors that we've been avoiding all week. And now here we are, cheek to jowl, in the pew next to each other. This is how God creates community. Interesting, interesting. Okay, then Paul you know, continues on. The body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. And so the foot can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. The, the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need uh, of you. That doesn't make it not part of the body. Um, and then if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And then at the very end, Paul says, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. That's a pretty important word for us in a church where we're, we're trying to pull together, but it's hard to pull together. Maybe we, 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 we're trying to practice kindness and conviction, but it's still hard to figure out how do we do that. Paul makes the comment here that each of us has a role to play and a job to do, that every part of the body counts. Um, and here, perhaps, to, to throw another metaphor into the mix, um, the church is like a mini-branched tree planted by God. And Jesus Christ is the single trunk that has then yielded this amazing canopy. Branches reaching up to the heavens. Uh, branches laden with fruit, almost coming down to the ground. Branches in the middle that squirrels are skittering around and hiding their nuts in and doing all the things. It's, it's, it's just this beautiful, magnificent tree. And I think we can see here that our, root, that our, our rooted unity in Christ can help create room for the diversity of our fruits and our unique gifts. So, I wonder how this passage might challenge us or inspire us to give each other the grace to be hands and feet, to be eyes and ears in the body of Christ. Uh, that means, can we make space for people who are genuinely different yes. from us, who see it differently, who hear it differently, but, but because of Christ, we're in it together. And can our differences and, and variations, could we come to see them not as a curse, but as God did this. God, God made the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and the liver and the heart. God, God is the one who created all of this. All right, so um, let me play then with Paul's metaphor here. And I'll, I'll give uh, some credit to my friend Joel Soliday, who wrote a piece years ago about these tensions. So I'm just going to play with this. God has arranged the members of the body, eyes and ears, hands and feet, each one as he chose. And so what if the eyes are like the pioneers and the explorers in the church, and the ears are like the settlers and the fort holders? Okay, there may be some tension there, but, but God has put them both in. And what if the hands value creative uh, expression and innovation, and the feet want to work hard to preserve identity. Well, if that's the reality, then what we have is a body in which different parts have valuable different functions. All right, so 
Let's, let's, let's tally this up a bit. The eyes trust instinct and intuition. The ears trust the map. The hands want to pursue healthy reform. The feet cherish the stability of a time-tested legacy. Eyes value responsible liberty, but ears value the guidance of God's word. Hands want to make the church relevant. Feet want to make the church timeless. Eyes focus on human rights. Ears focus on human responsibilities. Hands have a healthy disdain for legalism. Feet have a healthy disdain for relativism. Eyes want to focus on meeting changing needs. Ears focus on meeting timeless ideals. Hands value experimentation. Feet value stability. Eyes seek unity. Ears seek purity. Hands are sensitive to the neglect of the needy, challenging sins of omission. Ears are sensitive to moral chaos and decay, challenging sins of commission. Eyes need to work harder to resist relativism. Ears need to work harder to resist legalism. Can we affirm that the different parts of the body of Christ have different valuable and God-given functions, each of which is beautiful in its time? All right, I'm getting close. Uh, you remember Jesus. He's going up to Jerusalem and he begins to predict his passion. And he tells his followers, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be scourged and whipped and suffer. He's going to be crucified. And, and I, I love the way Luke summarizes their response. But they understood nothing about these things. In fact, what, was, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Okay, that's, that's what we call Luke and overkill. Three, three different ways of telling you the same thing. To the disciples, a, a crucified Messiah was unthinkable. It was undigestible. It, it, it doesn't fit. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And that's in the law, in the Torah. This cannot be. So what did the disciples do? Well, they continued listening. They continued wrestling. And they kept walking with Jesus. And that's my proposal when we come to places where we're trying and we're practicing kindness and we can't reach a total consensus together. What do we do? Well, I think we muddle through together, always following Jesus and always learning from him. Now, if we're going to do this, I think we'll need to widen our circles of conversation. And we're going to have to listen to voices we may not agree with. Mm. You can register your discomfort with that. Voices that make us uncomfortable. Voices that challenge our thinking. Eyes are going to have to listen to ears. Feet are going to have to listen to hands. We're going to need to keep checking in with each other. We can't expect everyone to agree, but we can agree to muddle through, even with our differences. And through it all, we'll agree to continue to break bread together at the Lord's table. A few years ago, uh, one of our elders at the time said, you know, we always assume in a church we either agree and stay or disagree and leave. What about, what about the third door? What about, we, we don't agree on everything, but we stay. We stay. Now, if this seems a little idealistic or pie in the sky, let me just tell you, you do this 
every year at Christmas, and every year at Thanksgiving in your family. <laughs> you may even do this with your spouse. I, I'm guessing there are spouses here who have voted for different candidates, and yet they still choose to love one another and to stay together and to work it out. So I just observed families find a way to muddle through together. Uh, sometimes they agree to disagree. Sometimes they'll say, you know, we're just not going to argue about that. Let, let's just enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, sometimes they'll engage in vigorous debate. If they've got the, the bandwidth and the capacity, let's talk, you know, let's argue. But, but at the end of the day, kindness, love, we're together. The body has different parts. We receive each other as God's gift to the body that's different from us. And so as I've said, my theological word for this is we muddle through together. Uh, we managed to do it despite the inherent difficulties because by one spirit we were baptized into one body whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given of the one spirit to drink. Uh, Augustine is credited with saying, and others are too, but he's the oldest one that I've seen, in essentials, unity, you remember this one, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, I think I've also seen it credited to either Stone or Campbell, but it, I, think it's, I think it's considerably older. Um, so I think healthy churches are able to say we don't have to agree about everything to love God and love neighbor and serve together. We can muddle through this together. And sometimes we can do better than muddling, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying, sometimes we muddle through together, loving each other despite our differences. And I think in every generation we're going to face these tensions and polarities. And we've already seen the model of splitting and becoming, you know, the, the town of 10,000 with two churches, you know. We, we've seen that model. How's that working for us? So what about, what about a different model? One that's harder. I'll admit, this is harder. It's harder to, to love those who are different and think different. It's annoying. You've got to put up with annoying people. But I think Christ calls us to, to, to grow uh, in, in, in that way. All right, let me close with two quotes. I know I've gone a little extra. Thank you for, for hanging in there. First quote, C.S. Lewis. The church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities. That's called a country club or, or, or whatever. So it's not that. The church is the body of Christ in which all members, however different, and here's his parenthetical comment, and God rejoices at their differences and by no means wishes to iron them out. <laughs> okay, so there we are. We must share the common life, complementing and helping one another precisely by our differences. We need each other. Eyes need hands, feet need ears. And then Christine Pohl. Um, the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Jesus risked his reputation and the credibility of his story by tying them to how his followers live and care for one another in community. John 17, the prayer for unity of the church. Let the world know that they are one as we are one. Okay, and then she goes on. The character of our shared life has the power to draw people to the kingdom or to push them away. How we live together is the most pervasive or persuasive sermon we will ever preach. May God bless you to go and to live in the tension of your faith and to love the one who's different from you, who's just down the pew from you. I think we can do better, church. So let's go and do better. Amen. God bless you. Amen.